Opening Arguments is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. So would you say you got a better shot of them going in and not so much coming out? You could say that. I did say that. Would you say that? Chester and I paid for his lawyer's condo in Aspen and my lawyer's condo in Maui. <laughs> They're very happy. They're going to trade once a year. <laughs> I would love to sue them. Only it would mean hiring another lawyer. <laughs> Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice, the Super Friends... Welcome opening arguments the podcast that breaks down the law behind all the news stories you care about this podcast is sponsored by the law offices of p andrew torres llc for entertainment purposes is not intended as legal advice and does not form an attorney client relationship don't take legal advice from a podcast guys. I'm Liz Dye. With me is Andrew Torres, and this is Opening Arguments, Episode 848. Hey, Liz. Palindromic episode number, so that's one It's always exciting. I know that's your thing. <laughs> How you doing? I'm doing all right. It's uh, I'm, I'm ready for a little time off, or sort of off. I'll, I'll probably work a little bit next uh, week, because this shit never stops. But mostly off, that would be good. Yeah, and as you are pointing out we are going to take a little break for the holidays we're not going to release a show on monday or wednesday next week that is december 25th and december 27th give give liz a little bit of illusory time off uh, give our audio engineer a little bit of time to be with uh with their family and uh and we get to come back one week from today all right but before we take our little break let's talk today uh, first about trump's uh ongoing efforts to get out of his D.C. election interference case. As you know, Special Counsel Jack Smith has filed a motion for certiorari before judgment. That is, he would like the Supreme Court to consider that immunity motion right now and not wait for the D.C. Circuit to chew it over. Yep. And then you've been waiting for it. You've been emailing us. You've been trying to get hold of us. We are obviously going to talk about the stunning uh, surprising decision from the Supreme Court in Colorado, the, the Colorado State Supreme Court, ruling that Donald Trump is ineligible under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution to serve as president and therefore should be stricken, not placed on the ballot in the Republican primary or any subsequent election uh, in Colorado. And uh, we're going to tell you what happened, what that means, what's going to happen going forward. We're going to break that down in, in a lot of detail. But, All right, uh, but before but first... that, <laughs> drudge sirens, weow, weow, Rudy Giuliani is bankrupt. I, I know, you guys, try not to faint from surprise here. Rudy Giuliani filed a petition for Chapter 11 bankruptcy today in the Southern District of New York, which is kind of wild since he used to run the Southern District of New York. He used to be the U.S. attorney there. But he's fallen pretty far. As you guys know, he is now subject to a $148 million judgment, which he owes to Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, the Atlanta poll workers whom he defamed and inflicted distress upon, as the as the jury found last week. Those obligations are not going to be dischargeable in bankruptcy, it seems, because they are 
willful and malicious torts. So uh, that that's not the kind of debt that can be discharged in bankruptcy, generally speaking. And, you know, it's clear that the jury did think that was a malicious tort since it imposed a $75 million punitive damages award. Yeah. And you are correct to focus on the dischargeability of that debt, right? And that means, does that go away when you emerge from the Chapter 11 reorganization, or does it survive the bankruptcy? And as you're pointing out, it is, I think, very likely to survive that bankruptcy. The immediate advantage to Rudy Giuliani is that when you file for bankruptcy, that puts into effect an automatic stay of all proceedings against the assets of the bankrupt estate. It stops the money from coming in or going out. And that's the immediate advantage because yesterday, Judge Beryl Howell of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia ruled that Freeman and Moss could begin attaching Giuliani's assets immediately. And their lawyers said that they had found significant assets in New York and elsewhere. So that bankruptcy will give Giuliani at least that temporary protection from watching money flow out of his bank accounts. Okay. Well, let's move on to Donald Trump because we got a lot to say today. (laughs) Yes, we do. So the Supreme Court said, "Okay, Donald Trump, tell us why we should or should not take this case before the D.C. Circuit has thought it over. And his deadline was yesterday, the 20th. And he he did, in fact, meet the deadline. And the special counsel had a week to respond. But the special counsel got his homework in today because that's that's what he's like. (laughs) Yeah. And let me say kind of at the at the top line that before seeing the briefing, I I think my gut was that Trump had a better than 50 50 shot at at getting the Supreme Court to, you know, let him kind of run out the clock. And, you know, they might have split the baby and and expedited part of the schedule after the D.C. Circuit ruled or whatever. But I, I have to say, seeing how bad Trump's arguments were, I'm now pretty bullish on the Supreme Court granting certiorari before judgment based on, again, you know, how how bad and, and sometimes like self-defeating and mutually contradictory. We'll, we'll get into it. Like Trump's arguments were bad. <laughs> yeah, look, I've written about this a couple of times at Above the Law. He's in a position where he's, tr- he's trying to make the argument that it is so obvious that he has this absolute immunity to prosecution that why would any court even have to think about it? And also, he doesn't want the court to think about it. You know, he's, he's, <laughs> he's trying to say this case is so obvious that it should immediately be dismissed. But please don't get to thinking about it, Supreme Court, without benefit of ruling by the D.C. Circuit. And like, I mean, as you and I discussed it earlier today, I don't think that even Alito is going to be like, I need to wait to hear from the guys on the D.C. Circuit to tell me what I think. I'm pretty sure I know what I think. (laughs) Right. And another really good point you made in your Above the Law article today is that the median justice on the Supreme Court right now is Justice Brett Kavanaugh. That's a terrifying thought. Right. (laughs) But but again, you know, so we're asking ourselves as as you're trying to read the tea leaves, right, what kind of arguments are going to appeal to John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh. And I think we were both the exact same level of flabbergasted to read Trump's brief in opposition to granting certiorari before judgment, right? To saying, hey, no, 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 just let this wend its way through the D.C. Circuit and treat this like any normal case. That it began with an argument on standing that I think just immediately sort of lost all credibility. What do you think? Yeah. So let's explain what he's trying to say. 
Trump's argument here is this court lacks jurisdiction to grant the petition because the government lacks Article 3 and prudential standing to appeal from a judgment that is entirely favorable to it. His theory of why this case doesn't belong in the Supreme Court is that the government, the special counsel, won and defeated his motion to dismiss at the trial court, and thus the winning party is not entitled to, you know, to appeal this case. But the problem is... The winning party is not the party that appealed this case. Donald Trump appealed this case. And what the hell are you talking about? Right. So Trump is essentially correct that by and large, when you win, you can't take an appeal. But as the special counsel's office pointed out today when it filed its reply six days early to turn in homework before the holidays, this is not a case in which the government appealed, right? The, the cases that Trump needed to cite are cases that say, you can't petition the Supreme Court for certiorari before judgment if you are not the appellant, right? If you are the appellee, if you are the party that's being dragged along. And Trump didn't cite any of these cases because there aren't those cases. <laughs> and in fact, again, now I'm just going to read from the government's brief. This case results from respondent's appeal. That's Trump's appeal of the denial of his motion to dismiss. That appeal presents the Article Three case or controversy that the petition, the government's petition, seeks to resolve. The government's petition for certiorari before judgment does not constitute an appeal. It seeks review of a case that is already, quote, in the Court of Appeals as authorized by statute, 28 U.S.C. Section 2101E. And for good measure, as the court explained in U.S. v. Nixon, a rather apt case, right, which was also certiorari before judgment. That was when the Supreme Court granted expedited review so that it could hold that, yes, Richard Nixon had to turn over the White House tapes, right? right. Uh, once an appeal is properly in the Court of Appeals, the party that prevailed in the district court may seek a writ of certiorari pursuant to 28 U.S.C., 1254, subsection 1, and 2101, subsection E, in which case the appeal is properly before the court. And look, it's not just that this is a dumb argument on which Trump will lose. It is that was how he led off his brief before, uh, you know, what ought to be a pretty favorable Supreme Court. And, you know, when you're the justices reading this, you're like, what the hell is this? It makes it harder for them to seize on parts of your argument that they might like later in your brief. That's what I mean by lost credibility. Yeah, I just want to read you a little passage from the Wikipedia page <laughs> about Trump's lawyer in this case, whose name is Dean John Sauer. He was a solicitor general of Missouri and the deputy AG in, in Missouri. He's a, you know, he's a, well, listen, Sauer graduated from St. Louis Priory, a Catholic secondary day school for boys in Crevcar, suburban St. Louis, Missouri, run by the Benedictine monks of St. Louis Abbey. Cool. Sauer received his bachelor's in arts and philosophy and his bachelor's of science in engineering and electrical engineering from Duke University. He earned a master of arts and philosophy from the University of Notre Dame and was a Rhodes Scholar at the University of Oxford, where he earned a BA in theology. Sauer received his Juris Doctor from Harvard Law School, where he was the articles editor for the Harvard Law Review. Very interesting, I know. My okay. point here is that John Sauer knows that this argument is bullshit, right? Yeah. He knows goddamn well. And he honestly, a guy that eminent you know it's it's just weird to see a guy that eminent put his name on such a piece of crap right like this is a ridiculous yeah. brief and he knows it yeah and so you know it makes you wonder how much he is or is not calling the shots but yeah so that was sort of out of the gate argument that just cites the wrong law then you have 
over 10 pages of argument, right? It's from pages 8 to 16 and then again at the end that are devoted to criticizing Judge Chutkin's opinion in the district court below, right? And again, the tension here is, as you are saying, here's how bad the district court's decision is. Here's how much they got it wrong. That is a cue to the Supreme Court. Those are the sorts of things you cite when you petition for certiorari, right? Like, that is a way of telling the court, like, yeah, look, this judge is terrible, completely got it wrong. Like, I need somebody to step in and make things right. And there's a huge tension between explaining that and saying, but, you know, don't don't step in now. I mean, I want you to step in six months from now. And right. I, it, it was just bizarre. Yeah, I I would agree with you, right? He's straddling two positions which are opposed to each other, right? He's saying, this is a a slam dunk case for me, and it should be overruled, but not yet, right? And and I think that that's the tell, that he knows that it's not going to be overruled. And we'll we'll get to that. But I think you and I both agree that this immunity argument is is ridiculous. And, And look, I think he knows it's ridiculous because the appeal that the special counsel has made is is a question of whether the former president retains immunity for criminal acts committed while in office. And Trump has turned that on his head and said, no, the question is whether the former president retains immunity for acts which were a part of his official duties. And as I always say, that's putting the rabbit in the hat. Right. Because right. it's these these acts are not part of his official duties. Right. There is no I mean, he, he even makes that stupid take care argument, which we've talked about before. And the take care argument says that the Constitution's take care clause vests the power to ensure that all laws are duly followed in the president. And so that makes him the sort of er policeman. And he had a responsibility <laughs> to ensure that Congress wasn't tabulating any fraudulent, you know, electoral college votes. That's ridiculous. Right. There is no. Yeah. There is no obligation. There is no policeman duty for the president in Congress. And the Constitution makes it clear that Congress has a role in the tabulation of electors and the vice president has a role in the tabulation of electors. But the one person who doesn't have the role is the sitting president. And so it's a very dumb argument. And so he tries to kind of back himself into a place where you don't look so close at that argument by saying, I was definitely doing president stuff when I tried to disrupt an official act of Congress. But I don't I don't think that the court's going to fall for it. And just I have a piece coming out tomorrow at public notice talking about the decision in the Mark Meadows case, which we discussed the other day, where Mark, mm-hmm. where Judge Pryor in Alabama, he's on the 11th Circuit, said, how can any of this be part of your official duties? None of this is part of your official duties, and you don't get federal removal. And so, you know, Trump didn't try it in Georgia the way that Mark Meadows did. But but you can see how he's trying to elide around that position by saying, this was all my official duties. Yeah. And the tell of how pointless that argument is, is Trump's opposition brief is 44 pages long and as we've said spends more than a dozen pages litigating the merits and the special counsel's reply brief is 14 pages long and devotes about a paragraph to that it just says yeah yeah he's trying to re-argue the merits which is a really good reason why this court ought to grant certiorari before judgment exactly the parts as i was reading trump's brief as if I were on Jack Smith's team, right, to, to sort of see, okay, where do they have good arguments? It's hard to find that, right? It, it begins on about page 25, where you are looking for the arguments that try and answer the question, right? Because if you are the Supreme Court, if you are Brett Kavanaugh 
John Roberts, and you have an open mind about, well, you know, should we wait and, you know, kind of give Trump what he wants here? What you're looking for are articulated reasons in the opposition as to what the benefit of not granting certiorari before judgment would be. And there are only a handful of argu- of arguments that Trump makes that even try and answer that question, right? I mean, there's sort of this general principle, haste makes waste, real quote from the brief that's like, you know, you, you should really take your time and think about this because it's important. And again, you know, Liz, you, you, you said this earlier, like, <laughs> okay, good luck persuading, you know, the nine people who have been anointed as the smartest lawyers in the country that like, you know, they need extra time to, you know, do their work. Right. I mean, and it's not like they're waiting to resolve a circuit split, right? It's not like there's going to be yeah. anybody else is only going to come up through the D.C. circuit because the president is only going to be, you know, prosecuted here in D.C. And hopefully there won't be other crimes, although who the hell knows? I mean, look, here's how I kind of think this through in my in my post it above the law, right, that Kavanaugh, assuming that he is the median justice and right, like that's the hellscape we live in, can't do anything about that. These are the two arguments, right? Trump's arguing that it is politicization to allow this case to be expedited so that it can go to trial before the election. So here's what the, you know, Trump says the special counsel's politicization of the trial schedule, including in this petition, departs from the best traditions of the U.S. Department of Justice, blah, 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 right? And what the special counsel says is the nation has a compelling interest in a decision on respondents' claim of immunity from these charges, and if they are to be tried, a resolution by conviction or acquittal without undue delay. So look, you can call it politics, whatever. I mean, each side has, I think it's fair to say, political considerations. But the question here is going to be whether whether Kavanaugh, let's be fair, it is going to be Kavanaugh, decides that this needs to be resolved sooner rather than later. But I, I do want to point out that the question of whether they decide to grant cert before judgment, whether they do it, that's not really going to be dispositive in my mind, because some of these judges are going to take it because they want to kill this case. And some of the judges are going to want to take this case because they want to make sure that this case goes forward. And you might not know if they grant cert before judgment what they intend to do. Yeah, that's right. And so here for example, is how you could get to six votes for certiorari before judgment and have no idea where the court is going on the merits, right? Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas all vote for certiorari before judgment because they want to immediately write an opinion that says the president is absolutely immune from criminal prosecution for all acts undertaken while in office if they're a Republican. And Kagan, Sotomayor, and Ketanji Brown-Jackson all vote for certiorari before judgment to avoid the procedural shenanigans of Donald Trump waiting until the very last possible moment to file his cert petition after the D.C. Circuit rules. And so you put those six votes together and you get a court that takes this case, but you still have no idea right where that conservative central, you know, the remaining right. three judges, right? Right. Where they're going to wind up on the merits. I mean, I have no idea where Barrett would go. Right. I have no idea where Barrett would go. I I suspect that she would go with the wing, not wing of the court. But you don't know where that's going to go. And, you you know, I I suspect that Roberts would not want to rule in favor of immunity. And so you're looking at Kavanaugh. Once again, you're looking at Kavanaugh. Sucks. There we are. Yeah. And just to talk about the procedural aspect, the special counsel's office made it 
very, very clear in their reply exactly how Donald Trump could game the system. Right? Because Trump's opposition is like, look, you already got the D.C. Circuit. There's going to be a oral argument on January 9th. They had expedited briefing. Right. What's the harm in a little bit of delay here? And as the special counsel's office points out, Trump can wait 45 days after the D.C. Circuit rules to petition for rehearing on Bonk and can wait 90 days under the ordinary rules to file a petition for certiorari. And of course he will do that. So, you know, if if they do not grant certiorari before judgment, I think it's going to be very, very difficult to get all the pieces in play to get this trial back on track in Washington, D.C. before the 2024 presidential election. And that would be a disaster. Agreed. And that, I think dovetails into the only thing that I found disappointing in the special counsel's reply brief, and that is Trump's brief says over and over again, this is a political witch hunt. I mean, it doesn't quite use the all caps, but it says the special mm-hmm. counsel's request threatens to tarnish this court's procedures with the appearance of partisanship. And then, you know, cites to the Wall Street Journal editorial board, you know, no, no, no partisanship going on there. Right? But like the, right. the, they are making this argument that says, you know, this is the DOJ being totally political and coming out against, you know, Jack Smith's boss's boss's main presidential opponent and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, of course, right, we want it delayed, but, you know, for completely non-political reasons. And, and I really hope that the special counsel's office had come out and said, look, Trump makes this argument in every single brief, and it is wrong on the facts and also wrong as trying to read what's going on in our head you know, this is I am appointed as a special counsel. I am insulated from the political process. I do not care. Uh, Joe Biden can't review my work. I don't know. They they decided not to do that. I, I don't know your thoughts on whether that was a smart decision or not. But uh, I, 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 I kind of wanted uh, him. To, yeah, probably. But I wanted him to come out swinging. <laughs> All right. So let's move on to Colorado because uh uh-huh. <laughs> because it's the biggest story in the world right now. And that decision dropped like 20 minutes after we finished recording Tuesday. Good time in Colorado. So, okay, <laughs> as you guys know, the Colorado trial court a little while ago agreed that Trump had been an insurrectionist, agreed that the plaintiffs had standing to challenge his placement on the ballot, but they held that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment does not apply to the president, and so Trump could not be removed from the ballot by the courts. And we'll, we'll read the the relevant section of the law in a second. The Supreme Court of Colorado affirmed the parts of the decision that said the plaintiffs had standing and that Trump indeed was an insurrectionist, but they reversed the part that said that the constitutional provision of the 14th Amendment does not apply to the president. And thus they said, you're out of here. Trump can't be on the president. Sorry, Trump can't be on the ballot. So as of today, Donald Trump is ineligible to hear to appear on the Colorado Republican presidential primary ballot or indeed the general election ballot. So now let's talk about the decision itself. Three months ago, a group of Colorado voters who were eligible to vote in the Republican presidential primary filed a petition in state court asking for a declaration that he couldn't be on the ballot. And their claim was rooted in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which says, 
no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to enemies thereof. Right. And that is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. Amendments 13, 14, and 15 were the Reconstruction-era amendments to the Constitution after the end of the Civil War that were designed to govern the reintegration of the southern states back into the Union to ensure civil rights to newly freed slaves, to abolish slavery throughout the United States, and as part of that, to ensure that those who having previously sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States of America, nevertheless went off and declared war against the United States of America, could not come back in and join the government and start voting against all of the measures that were designed to protect newly freed slaves throughout the entire United States. So in response to the Civil War, we amended the Constitution. And Section 3, and this is really crucial, this was actually a point that, that Seth Bear Tillman made when, when he was on the show, does not say those who were convicted of treason, right? It's not tied to treason at all. It says if you engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States, having previously taken an oath of office to support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America, shall not be eligible to serve or to, quote, hold any office, civil or military, under the United States. And so the question is, right, does that apply to Donald Trump? And so what I find, I think, the most interesting about this is that the intellectual arguments that this provision, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, apply to Donald Trump are not coming from our side of the aisle. They are not coming from liberals who interpret the Constitution using the ordinary methods that I have talked about here on this show, they come from and are primarily being cheerled by Professors William Bode and Michael Stokes Paulson, conservative, originalist, textualists, right? In other words, these arguments are aimed right at the wheelhouse of the current six-justice conservative majority of our Supreme Court. Yeah, let, let me just disambiguate that for a second. What we're saying here is that under the plain language of this statute, an originalist approach would yield Donald Trump being ineligible to be on the ballot, right? So if a court made a finding of fact that Donald Trump did indeed participate in an insurrection, he would thus be ineligible. And that's what you would, uh, you know, you would find if you were a person who was purporting to take all of your cues from the sacred language of the text. That's not what people on our side generally do, because we don't, you know, we don't call ourselves originalists as like a sort of catch-all way to make sure that progress <laughs> never happens. And, you know, the, the country stays mired in this conservative, you know, white male patriarchy system, right? Well, that's not what we're about. But this is going to scramble that valence, because employing that originalist approach is going to produce an outcome that conservatives will not like. So now you're going to see you're going to see the limits of that originalism. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. 
so let's talk about the trial court's decision because it has it has three components. First, the court held that the Republican voters had standing to challenge, like we said, whether Trump could appear on the ballot. Uh, Second, yes, Trump had engaged in insurrection. And third, the court held that the presidency was not any office, civil or military under the United States, and being president was not an officer of the United States, such that Trump never took an oath to support the Constitution of the United States. The case is Anderson v. Griswold, and Andrew Ewan, Seth Barrett Tillman talked about it in detail on episode 836. We did. And uh, yes, we are, of course, going to have Professor Tillman back on the show because his analysis features prominently in one of the dissents. And I want us to revisit that office and officer language. And obviously, that's been Professor Tillman's baby. But today, I want to discuss the standing argument. Right, Because I think that this is a point that is discussed at great length in the Bode and Paulson Law Review article. And it is, I think, the hardest part of these cases to, to really understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's let's set the stage. Under Article 2, Section 1 of the U.S. Constitution, each state has the power to appoint presidential electors, quote, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct, which means that the states have plenary power to decide who does and who does not get to appear on their presidential ballot. And You've seen the, you know, the the originalist approach to this one is the independent state legislature theory. But we don't have to stop there for (laughs) right now. Then the Colorado Election Code, that's CRS 1-4-1203 and 1204, says that only, quote, qualified candidates can run in a primary. So when you register to appear on the ballot, you sign an affidavit with the Secretary of State that says, I intend to run for the office stated above and solemnly affirm that I meet all qualifications for the office prescribed by law. If a voter thinks that a declared candidate is not qualified, there's another section of the election code, that's section 113, which provides the procedures to challenge the person appearing on the ballot and say, like, this person is only 14 years old or, you know, this person was born in, you know, Ecuador. Right. And you crack the joke, but that brings up a relevant decision. This is from the Ninth Circuit, so it is persuasive authority, but it's pretty persuasive. And and also, uh, as is the theme here, was written by a very conservative judge, Alex Kaczynski. So that decision, uh, yes, it is called Lindsay versus Bowen. And here's the facts of the case. Peter Lindsay was the 2012 U.S. presidential nominee of the Peace and Freedom Party in California. So you go, girl. Um, The... the (laughs) The California law. California, simmer down. (laughs) And the California law was much broader than the Colorado law, right? As you point out, different states can set different criteria however they want. California's law said that the California Secretary of State should list on the ballot anyone, quote, who is generally advocated for or recognized throughout the United States or California as actively seeking the presidential nomination should be listed on the ballot. And, right, Lindsay was actively seeking the presidential nomination. She had the backing of the Peace and Freedom Party. The only problem was she was 27 um, and not 35. And and Lindsay's argument, yeah, right, was that she had a First Amendment right to seek the presidency as a stunt, right, Uh, to, you know, draw attention, whatever, even though she couldn't legally hold the office, right? So it's a free Mm -hmm. speech point. And the, the California Secretary of State rather disagreed. Uh, and excluded Lindsay from the list of candidates. And then Lindsay sued to get back on the ballot. And um, and the Ninth Circuit said no. And, and here's what the Ninth Circuit said. Lindsay, therefore, by virtue of being 27, could never have been a legitimate contender for the presidency. And there is no doubt 
that a state has an interest, if not a duty, to protect the integrity of its political processes from frivolous or fraudulent candidacies. Holding that Secretary Bowen, that, that was the Secretary of State, couldn't exclude Lindsay from the ballot despite her admission that she was underage would mean that anyone, regardless of age, citizenship, or other constitutional ineligibility, would be entitled to clutter and confuse our electoral ballot. Nothing in the First Amendment compels such an absurd result. Right. So we're going to leave aside the question of whether the president is an officer. We're going to leave that mm-hmm. aside for Professor Tillman because that's that's his wheelhouse and he's going to get it better than we are. But let's talk about whether a state can rely on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to declare that a candidate is not eligible to be president in the same way that it can rely on, say, Article 1 to say that a 27-year-old is not eligible, right? This is the, this is the self-executing kind of issue, mm-hmm. right? So there are pundits now talking about how if Trump had been convicted in the D.C. case, that would be sufficient evidence that he engaged in insurrection and Colorado could keep him off the ballot, but that just having a court make a you know a fact determination without a criminal conviction is not enough. And if you hold that position, you're just saying you disagree with the facts, but not the law of the Colorado opinion. In other words, if there's any set of facts under which Colorado or another state could keep Trump off the ballot, then you think that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is self-executing, right? That That's why this is a question of standing. If Section 3 is not self-executing, if someone has to go out and enforce it, then no state can keep Trump off the ballot under any circumstances, even if he's convicted in D.C. in the summer. So what do we mean when we say a part of the Constitution is self-executing? Yeah, in a sense, it is, I think, what the average person thinks of as as the default position, right? Most of the Bill of Rights is self-executing. Right. The First Amendment is self-executing. The Second Amendment is self-executing. What that means is that the language of the Constitution itself not only creates the abstract right, right, so the right to freedom of the press and freedom of speech and right to peaceably assemble, right, that sort of thing, but that it specifies the remedy, that is, how you can sue to enforce that right, right? So it requires no further action by any branch of government, specifically by the legislature, by Congress. That's in contrast to sometimes courts have held that sometimes language in the Constitution will set out a general principle or right, but it will leave open for future legislative action exactly how you can defend that right. And if that's the case, that provision is is sometimes considered non-self-executing. Right. So an example of a non-self-executing provision in the Constitution is Article III's creation of the judiciary as vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as Congress may from time to time create. Right. Well, you know, then Congress has to go create those inferior courts. And that's why we've talked about the Judiciary Act of 1789 creating the, the lesser federal court structure. Right. And. Where that line is, right, which provisions are self-executing versus non-self-executing is an open question in, in a lot of constitutional provisions. So, for example, right now, there is a case pending before the Supreme Court, uh, just got briefed this week. It's called De Villiers versus Texas. And the question is whether the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment is self-executing or not, right? So that's the part of the Fifth Amendment that says nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation, right? The, the eminent domain provision, right? So, you know, you have a right to not have your property taken. But now let's suppose, and these are the facts of that de Villiers case, 
the government takes it anyway. Or, or actually, I mean, what happened was the state of Texas built a dam right next to their property, and it flooded their land such that it became worthless. And that's called a, a constructive taking, right? When you reduce the value of the land to zero. And the question is, can the landowners sue the state of Texas for damages based only on the Fifth Amendment? Or do they need a specific law from Congress under which they can sue for damages? Because the problem is, the law that Congress did create, which you will recognize, 42 U.S.C. Section 1983, right? These are Section 1983 claims. That lets you sue municipalities, but not states. So, right, if it's not self-executing, then the de Villiers have no cause of action against the state for having built the dam next to their property. If it is self-executing, they do. And, you know, it turns out that, that that's been briefed. The government has taken the, the position, not surprisingly, that the Fifth Amendment is not self-executing. And so, you know, you, you can't sue Texas. Oh, well, you know, too bad. Okay, so can you? That was a fun little rabbit trail, but can you can you bring it back to to this case? Like, what does it mean? What, what does it mean to be self executing in, in terms of the Colorado case? Yes. So, if Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment is self executing, then you do not need Congress to have passed a law that explains how to keep insurrectionists from holding office, right? In order for citizens to sue and vindicate their rights under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Just the Constitution is enough. Okay? And in fact, it, I think, implies a step beyond that, right? That states not only have the right, but in fact, the duty to keep insurrectionists off the ballot. On the other hand, if Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is not self-executing, then while Congress can do things that it you know, has done in the past, like refuse to seat members on the grounds that they're insurrectionists, you as a voter do not have the specific remedy of filing a lawsuit to keep an insurrectionist off the ballot because Congress hasn't passed a law saying you can do so. Make sense? I think so. I think so. Yeah. So the Colorado Supreme Court has said that Section 3 is self-executing. And I have to say, I think they're right. And if that's the case, if Section 3 is self-executing, then the significance is, as you are looking to the center of the U.S. Supreme Court right now, and Roberts and Kavanaugh and, you know, <laughs> I guess Barrett is the next one, who knows, right? Like, then the only argument that Trump can win at the Supreme Court is to convince that Roberts-Kavanaugh axis on the office and officer language. Let's back up a second, because I think I think a few of our, our listeners may be a little confused, and I'm a little confused myself. What are you going to have to persuade the median justices to, to do or to think if they are going to leave this Colorado Supreme Court decision intact? Tell me how this self-executing thing plays into that. So the argument that these Colorado Republican voters will need to make before the Supreme Court is that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is self-executing. That is, that it creates not only an amorphous general right to have a government free of insurrectionists, but that it in fact prescribes the exact remedy by which we can have a government free of insurrectionists. So that's a standing argument, right? That that to to yes. 
Right, because they're going to have to persuade the court that they had standing to bring this challenge so that the court doesn't say, this is not self-executing, and so it's just kind of a nebulous thing, and there's nobody who can really enforce it. Right. And just to be clear, Congress has never passed any law that regulates how former insurrectionists may or may not hold office. So in other words, if it is not self-executing, then that right, though amorphous, is practically not enforceable. The only people that can act on it would be Congress itself. And Congress has, as we've talked about on the show, kicked out members of Congress for being insurrectionists. And not just Civil War insurrectionists, right? Uh, Post-World War I, they kicked out a socialist congressman for allegedly being an insurrectionist for, you know, being a socialist. And Congress would have that power, whether it is self-executing or not. But these individual voters would only be able to keep Trump off the ballot if they can persuade the Supreme Court that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is, in fact, self-executing. Okay, so... Can we loop back to the hippy-dippy California case or whatever? The I don't know, there's a piece of love party. I don't even remember at this point. But like, what, right. what happened there was that the Ninth Circuit said that the state could, in fact, kick this person off the ballot because she was too young to hold the office. So it was indeed self-executing, right? That's right. And But remember, those qualifications, right, come from Article One of the Constitution. So you mm-hmm. could, as a conservative judge, as, as any kind of judge, say, I think Article 1 is self-executing, right? That the president must be 35 uh, and must be a natural-born citizen, even though, you know, natural-born citizen is, uh, I would argue, at least as ambiguous as engaged in insurrection, right? But that's a textualist argument. That's going to be one that, that they're going to have to engage with. But nevertheless, you could say, I think Article 1 is self-executing, but Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is not. But as you've seen, I am reasonably persuaded by this decision that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is in fact self-executing. And I think the arguments are well positioned at that conservative vertex at the center of the court to win over a, a Roberts and a Kavanaugh. I do not. I want to be very, very clear. I think at the end of the day that this is an outcome driven court, right? And I do not think that this decision is likely to survive. But if so, it will not be because of a faithful textual reading of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And for a lot of reasons, like number one, right? Section 3 of the 14th Amendment uses the exact same shall language as other parts of the 14th Amendment that the Supreme Court has long said are self executing. Right. Mm -hmm. Way back in the civil rights cases in 1883, the Supreme Court said that the 14th Amendment, the entirety of the 14th Amendment, quote, is undoubtedly self-executing without any ancillary legislation so far as its terms are applicable to any existing state of circumstances, end of quote. Mm -hmm. And similarly, right, the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery. I mean, could you imagine an interpretation that said, you know, the 13th Amendment isn't self-executing. So, you know, until Congress passes a law saying exactly how we're going to repeal slavery, I I know it says that, you know, no person shall exist in slavery or involuntary servitude throughout the United States. But, you know, you don't have a remedy for that because it's not self-executing, right? Like, that's a crazy argument, right? And we have a history in this country of interpreting the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, you know, together, right? They're they're all part of the Reconstruction Amendments. And in opposition to that textualist argument, 
is really only one point. It is made in one of the dissents. And it says, Section 3 does not lay out the procedures that must be followed to determine whether someone has engaged in insurrection after taking the prerequisite oath. That is, it sheds no light on whether a jury must be impaneled or a bench trial will suffice, the proper burdens of proof and standards of review, the application of discovery and evidentiary rules, or even whether civil or criminal proceedings are contemplated. The dearth of procedural guidance is not surprising because Section 5 of the 14th Amendment specifically gives Congress absolute power to enact legislation to enforce Section 3. Right. So, so that argument is it's not specific enough, therefore it's not self-executing. And I think the response back to that goes all the way back to, Liz, what you said at the very beginning of this segment, which is it is an article of faith on the right. And in fact, held more strongly, the further to the right you go, that states have plenary power to answer all those questions, right? Mm -hmm. that, that those are precisely the kinds of things that we leave to the states to regulate with respect to elections, right? And so... Colorado has said, yeah, here's the procedure we follow in our state. If you want to kick somebody off the ballot, you get to come in. We have these procedures. It's, it's expedited. It goes before a judge. You get a direct appeal to the Supreme Court, all the stuff that happened here. And for the U.S. Supreme Court to turn around and say Colorado can't do that is going to involve some really, really awkward gymnastics by the right wing of the Supreme Court in order to figure out a way to say, yes, states have plenary power to determine, you know, to, to take back electors, right? But no, they can't impose qualifications based on their interpretation of the 14th Amendment. That's a, that's a hard position to argue. Yeah. Okay. But as with our first segment, this is going to be an issue of timing, right? Because, it's, mm -hmm. you know, we're less than a year out from the election and there's going to have to be a primary. And if states are going to start kicking Trump off the ballot, like the Supreme Court's going to have to weigh in sooner rather than later. So let's let's look at this decision in the Colorado Supreme Court. The order that the secretary of state has to kick Trump off the ballot is stayed until January 4th, because under Colorado law, the ballots have to be certified by the secretary of state by January 5th. So... It says, if review is sought in the Supreme Court before the stay expires on January 4th, 2024, then the stay shall remain in place and the secretary will continue to be required to include President Trump's name on the 2024 presidential primary ballot until the receipt of any order or mandate from the Supreme Court. And they, they mean the Supreme Court of the United States. Right. And I should say parenthetically that because this is an interpretation of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, that's how you can get certiorari to the Supreme Court of a state Supreme Court decision. If this were only interpreting the Colorado Supreme Court, right, it would not. There would be no potential that, that you know, state Supreme Courts are supreme when it comes to their own law. Uh, but because they're interpreting the U.S. Constitution, Trump can petition the Supreme Court. And so I would also add that this decision has implications beyond Colorado. And let's Let's clarify that because I think there's a fair amount of misinformation out there, right? You will hear from media sources that there are cases pending in 16 states. That's technically true, but, you know, not the best kind of correct, right? Like it's misleading in the same way that it is misleading to hear that three states have already ruled against the applicability of, of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. That's also true, but those three cases uh, and the majority of the cases filed in that are pending in, in 16 states are all pro se cases, right? This case, plus cases pending in Michigan, Minnesota, and Oregon, 
are cases in which the petitioners are represented by counsel. Okay, I'm going to break in. I have written publicly and said on the show that I'm not a fan of this strategy. I wrote a whole article at Day Magazine about it. I I think it was in November, possibly October. I I don't love this um, because I think that it is only, it's not going to really affect the Electoral College other than it will kind of radicalize people on both sides of the aisle, right? If you knock Trump off of the ballot in Colorado, well, Trump wasn't going to win Colorado anyway. And so, you know, same for like California or other states that are going to have liberal judiciaries. Conversely, if you don't knock him off the ballot, if there's a challenge in a place like Mississippi, well, the Mississippi state courts are never going to knock Trump off the ballot. It's not going to it's not going to change the outcome anywhere. And I'm not going to say it's like one weird trick, but I think that people put a lot of their hopes on it when, as I said, it's it's not going to change the outcome. It's just going to increase people's claims that this is unfair. And I, I'm more persuaded than I was a couple of months ago when I wrote that article that if the Constitution says it, then it's not a it's not one weird trick. I'm more persuaded of the logic, the internal logic of the argument. But as a political argument, I don't think it's going to work. Even if the Supreme Court said, you know, by some miracle, they were like, screw it, we're not touching this and we're not granting cert. Well, then that would like unleash a free for all in the states. And then but I don't think that it would it would affect the Electoral College maybe at all. So fine. All right. But let's go back to this. The Colorado challenge was brought by Republican voters seeking to exclude Trump from the primary. And challenging the eligibility of candidates is a thing that candidates do and have done since the beginning of time. And in support of that proposition, let's go to Cedar Rapids, Iowa on January 8th, 2016, where a certain legal scholar noted that you can't have a person who's running for office, even though Ted Cruz is very glib and he goes out and says, well, I'm a natural born citizen. But the point is, you're not. Cruz would have to go to court to get a declaratory judgment or you have a candidate who just cannot run. And like, obviously, that was, you know, Mr. Truth Social himself opining that because (laughs) Ted Cruz was born in Canada, he can't he's ineligible to run for president. Right. So the point is that that the right wing is currently losing its mind about the undemocratic one weird trick that Democrats are trying to use to keep Trump off the ballot and leave aside that this was Colorado Republicans who filed this case. They've all understood, right, like that Trump was perfectly content to say that uh, Ted Cruz was ineligible and Trump's best buddy, John Eastman, was perfectly willing to say that Kamala Harris was ineligible because her parents were not Americans, and he doesn't believe in birthright citizenship. So challenging candidates based on their eligibility, that's not new. Yeah. So let's talk about the three ways that this could go from here on out. Okay. First, and again, exceedingly unlikely, Trump could either not file a cert petition. I mean, you know, it's been two days, he still hasn't. Or he could miss the January 4th deadline, right? Like he put Alina Haba in charge of it, or right? Or, or the Supreme <laughs> Court could... Could deny she forgot cert, to ask right? for like, a jury. <laughs> so I, I agree that none of those are a very likely outcome. But if that were to be the case, right, if this decision stands, then uh, it would go into effect with finality on January 5th. Secretary mm-hmm. of State Jenna Griswold would authorize a Republican primary ballot that does not include Donald Trump. And um, already Trump's, you know, mini me wannabe Vivek Ramaswamy uh, has promised to withdraw from the Colorado primary if Trump isn't on the ballot, which I think he thinks is a threat. 
<laughs> oh, don't threaten me with a good time. Yeah. <laughs> and look, in that scenario, the RNC absolutely can schedule some other way to award Colorado's delegates, right? They could hold a caucus. They could hold a straw poll. They, they could just hand them over to Trump, right? Like they have the power to do that, right? But, you know, <laughs> they would run the risk that their Republican nominee would not be on the fall general election ballot in Colorado. And then let's game that out, right? In that situation, Donald Trump is the Republican nominee for president. You have Colorado Supreme Court says he may not appear on the general election ballot either. The Colorado legislature absolutely could pass a law to change how Colorado's electors are appointed and how the state's electoral votes are awarded. Right. That law could sidestep the statute that applies to the 14th Amendment and they could appoint electors who would cast their vote for Trump or just, you know, give it to Trump outright like there's no question that that would spawn a ton of litigation, right? And and there's also no question that, like, you know, none of that would happen because Colorado's legislature is Democratic. The governor is a Democrat, Jared Polis, right? But, but Liz, as you were talking, th- this is a cautionary tale if you tried to bring this in a state like, I don't know, Wisconsin, right? Like, if the Wisconsin Supreme Court kept Trump off the ballot, the Wisconsin state legislature is Republican, and that backlash might be, okay, fine, you're going to get this liberal Supreme Court to keep Trump off the ballot. We're just going to have the Republican state legislature pick our electors, regardless of the popular vote. Yeah, that that, that would be bad. And, and I think, <laughs> look, considering that the Republican state legislature is totally gerrymandered and is to go, like threatened to impeach the Supreme Court justice if she takes away their gerrymander, I 100% think that's what they would do. Yes, I agree. Okay. So that's the first, and that's the win scenario, right? The second scenario is that the Supreme Court grants certiorari before January 4th, right? And I should just add parenthetically, like, there is no way that they are going to grant certiorari and rule before January 4th, right? They, they might put an interim stay in effect or whatever, but it, but it wouldn't matter because by the terms of the Colorado State Supreme Court's order, that would mean that Trump's name would be on the primary ballot as an eligible candidate when Secretary Griswold gives her final approval on January 5th. But then suppose this happens. Suppose the Supreme Court hands takes the case and hands down a decision in February or March that affirms. That would mean that you would have an ineligible candidate on the ballot who's overwhelmingly likely to win. Uh, and again, it would be up to the RNC to figure out how to award uh, Colorado's delegates in, in that scenario. And then, of course, there's the third scenario, which is that the Supreme Court grants cert Trump's name remains on the ballot and the Supreme Court reverses. I think that's what the Colorado Supreme Court expects, right? I think that's why they wrote their order this way. I think it's the likeliest outcome. But again, I'm a little bit less certain than when this, when I saw the news of the decision being handed down that that's where the Supreme Court's going to wind up. I, I think it's possible that the arguments, if... No, who am I kidding? I was <laughs> I was about to say. Yeah, I don't know where you're going John with that. I was Roberts, like, uh, let me see how you should get yourself out of this one. There's no, yeah. there's no goddamn way they're going to let that. Come on, they're not going to do that. They're not going to. Here's here's what I here's what I mean to say. Right, if John Roberts and Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh honestly applied the things that they claim to believe, that this would be. Uh, let alone the rest of the court, this would be a, a, an affirmance of the Colorado State Supreme Court's opinion, right? The principles of law that they use to approach these questions compel the result that the Colorado Supreme Court reached. And what will be interesting is 
figuring out how they tap dance away and reach the opposite results while still piously claiming to value the plain meaning of the text of the 14th Amendment. So can't wait. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us tonight. Um, Have a wonderful Christmas, you guys who celebrate, and um, we will see you in a little bit. Thanks for sticking with us. It's been a fun year. Absolutely. And thank you, Liz, for being here. All right. See you guys. You got into Harvard Law? What? Like it's hard? This has been Opening Arguments with Andrew and Liz. If you love the show and want to support future episodes, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash law. If you can't support us financially, it'd be a big help if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Spotify, whatever podcast delivery vehicle you use. And be sure to tell all your friends about us. For questions, suggestions, and complaints, email us at openarguments at gmail.com. The show notes and links are on our website at openargs.com. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at OpenArgs. This podcast is a production of Opening Arguments Media, LLC, with assistance from Teresa Gomez and Deborah Smith. Copyright 2023, Opening Arguments Media, LLC, all rights reserved.